0: Do you wonder how the ancient truth of the Bible intersects with today's news? Do you believe in God's promises to the people and the land of Israel? Welcome to the Lone Star Podcast, a weekly conversation to expand your mind and encourage your soul. Our hosts live in the two Lone Star states, Rabbi Dove Lippman in Israel and Pastor Trey Graham in Texas. This podcast is your opportunity to learn the truth about the God of Israel from two people who love Israel. Please follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new weekly episodes are ready. You ready to be encouraged? Please join Rabbi Dove Lippman and Pastor Trey Graham.
1: We do welcome you to this edition of the Lone Star Podcast. This is Pastor Trey Graham. I'm joined by my good friend, Rabbi Dove Lippman. Shalom, my friend. Blessings to you and your family.
2: Shalom, Pastor. Thank you so much. It's always good to talk to you.
1: Let's talk about some news going on in the Holy Land this week, and then we'll get into this week's Torah portion. And the title is Bo, the Hebrew word that means go or come. And it's going to come from Exodus chapters 10, 11, 12, and 13. We'll get into the Torah portion in a moment. But there was some big news on the domestic political front, and that is the United States government under President Donald Trump has declared they will withhold funding. From a specific agency within the United Nations is the UN Relief and Works Agency, usually spelled by the acronym UNRWA. And the United States gives about 360 million dollars a year to UNRWA. The U.S. is the biggest contributor of any organization and any nation to UNRWA. And the United States has decided that they have a planned 125 million dollar payment coming up, and they're only going to give 60 million out of the 125. And so, if you do all the math. That means America is going to give $304 million instead of $364 million. And the whole world is up in arms. All the Palestinians are up in arms because the U.S. said we're not going to give money to an organization that promotes terrorism or that is wasteful or corrupt with their money. So now that I've set the scene with the news headlines, talk about UNRWA, what it does versus what it's supposed to do.
2: So just to go back and explain some of the history, because it's confusing uh, to people, Uh, In 1947, the United Nations decided that there's a partition plan for the land of Israel, that half of the land will go towards an Arab country, half the land will go towards a Jewish country. Jews accepted it, and the Arabs rejected it. The Jews, based on that UN decision, established the state of Israel in May 1948. The Arabs not only rejected it, but attacked this new state from all sides. During that war... There are people who became refugees, that lived in different places uh, in Israel, and as can happen in war, people are fighting against each other, and the Jewish state is fighting for its life, and people ended up fleeing, and they became refugees. The U.N. has an establishment for refugees, and they establish a special one just for the Palestinian refugees. That's one thing which people have to ask themselves. Why do the Palestinians, there are refugees all around the world from conflicts that happen. There have been Jewish refugees in history. There are Christian refugees in history, and there's a special organization just for the Palestinian refugees. And... The worst part about the situation for the refugees is that they've preserved them as refugees from one generation to the next and to the next. We have a third generation right now with a given refugee status that never happens anywhere in the world. You're a refugee for one generation. The first people that flee are refugees. Their children don't become refugees, and it's time to start settling yourselves in a new way, in a new place, and try to figure things out. These Palestinians have been kept as refugees by the UN and by the international community just to be able to keep this conflict with Israel going, to say that Israel uh, has created this refugee problem and let's just pour huge amounts of money into the system just to keep them as refugees. And as you said, when you keep people as refugees, that puts them in a state of hopelessness and in a state of animosity towards Israel, it promotes terrorism, and we in Israel are, are thrilled that someone is standing up and taking a stand against this and is starting the process of defunding an organization which is not helping anyone. It's just keeping people as refugees. It's just preserving conflict, and we thank God that the United States is waking up to this and is making the kinds of decisions that they're making. And I, I think you're right, Pastor, that people don't know uh, very much about this. And do Americans know how much of their taxpayer money is flowing in to these refugees for a few generations, and breeding terrorism. And these are not American values. And uh, Americans should be there to help people pick themselves up and get their lives started again, not preserve them as refugees and put them in a situation where they are incited towards uh, terrorism. So we we certainly applaud it, and this is a continuation of the blessings that we've seen recently in terms of decisions that are being made towards Israel and towards uh, those who hate Israel.
1: The Israeli ambassador to the United Nations, his name is Danny Danone. His quote is, UNRWA has proven time and again to be an agency that misuses the humanitarian aid of the international community and instead supports anti-Israel propaganda, perpetuates the plight of Palestinian refugees, and encourages hate. He also says that just over the last year alone, UNRWA officials were elected to the leadership of Hamas in the Gaza Strip, UNRWA schools denied the existence of Israel, and terror tunnels were dug under UNRWA facilities. It's time for this absurdity to end and for humanitarian funds to be directed toward their intended purpose, the welfare of refugees. And again, that was the quote from Israeli ambassador to the United Nations, Danny Danone, a friend of ours, a man who's spoken here at our church home in Texas. And one of the things that I want our listeners to remember is as people who love the Bible, who love God, we don't desire suffering for any group of people. We don't hate any specific people. We hate ideologies that are evil. We hate ideologies that devalue life. So we don't want plight or struggle or crisis for the palestinians we want them to have a successful life and have enough money to pay their bills and put food on the table and have a normal happy existence the same thing we would want for israelis or americans we want for palestinians their problem is not that the americans hate them or the Israelis hate them. Their problem is their own leaders are corrupt. They use this money to pad their own pockets. They use this money to encourage terrorism. We've talked on the podcast previously about using Palestinian Authority funding to either pay the salaries of terrorists who are in jail or give a severance package to the families of the terrorists who are killed in the act of committing terror. And so I want our listeners to understand we don't hate people. We don't desire suffering for people. We just want leaders to do what is right and be honest, and we don't want American taxpayer money used for encouraging terrorism.
2: And That's the key point, which... We talk about all the time, or try to speak about all the time, to show that Israel is not interested in seeing anybody suffer. Israel would love to see this conflict resolved. would love to see refugees have homes. Uh, would love to see a United Nations that really fulfill its mandate, which is to help people instead of preserve conflict or choose sides and, and be so anti-Israel. And we would like to see nothing more than that. That's why we're the only country in the Middle East that preserves freedom of worship for all faiths. Twenty percent of our population is Arab, and we strive that they should have equal lives to the rest of Israeli society. And we're the only country in the Middle East uh, which has that. And again, this is all part of, you know, narratives are important. and The stories that people tell are important. And it's very important that people who are listening understand what Israel truly is and what ideologies, as you said it, are driving keeping people as refugees and giving people lack of a future and lack of a hope. And when you think about the billions of dollars that have flown into these organizations over the last few decades, billions of dollars, And all it's done is preserve people in poverty and with no future, instead of building them an economy and building them homes and building them hospitals and schools. This is what this is about, and Israel would like to see nothing more than a a shift. And then, of course, I I imagine Americans would be thrilled to see that their money is going to help people. But at the moment, uh, it's going to hurt people, going to hurt Israel, and going towards hurting Palestinians. And that's a real shame, and that's why we're so proud of the decision, and we celebrate the decision, not because we don't want to help people, specifically because we do want to help people, and this money was just hurting them and just hurting us.
1: We do thank our president, Mr. Trump, for being careful about where American taxpayer money is going, and Ambassador to the U.N. Nikki Haley saying... We want to have accountability for our funding. We want to know that it's being used for purposes that are in accordance with American values. And I think this is another good decision. Not all of Mr. Trump's decisions have been good, let's be honest. But I believe this is a good one. And the use of taxpayer money should encourage the education, the welfare, the advancement of peoples and not continue to keep them in poverty or in bondage. And so I appreciate this action done by Mr. Trump and the American administration. And Rabbi, let's turn our attention to this week's scriptures. You and I gather together every week to discuss the parasha, the weekly Torah portion from the Bible that Jews have been studying together every Shabbat for over 2,000 years. This week's Torah portion picked up, of course, from last week. When we began talking about the plagues in Egypt, when God led Moses and his brother Aaron to go to the Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, and demand that the slaves who were the Israelites in Egypt be released from captivity, the Pharaoh said no. As we read in the early chapters of Exodus, the Pharaoh hardened his heart. He was rebellious. He was stubborn against the Lord. And so what happened is the Lord promised that there will be consequences for your disobedience. There will be consequences for your refusal to listen to the one true God. And what did the Lord do? As Pharaoh was refusing to obey, the Lord sent plagues. And we went over the first seven of the plagues in the chapters that we discussed last week. The next three plagues, numbers 8, 9, and 10 on the list, are in this week's portion. Again, the title for this week is Bo, B-O, as you were writing it in English, and it means to come or to enter. And the 8, 9, and 10 plagues cover locusts, darkness, and the death of the firstborn. And so before we get into the specifics of them, Rabbi, last week we brought you some new information you said about how the plagues were specifically targeted. To the false gods and goddesses of the Egyptians and how the one true God the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob demonstrated his sovereignty over all the false gods pick up the story at that point
2: we have the last three plagues that you mentioned and certainly the last one is the death of a firstborn which actually reaches to Pharaoh himself and all of this builds up to the Exodus. This is the Torah portion where the Exodus actually takes place, where Pharaoh calls Moses and says, just get out of here. And the people of Israel get to pick up and leave. And and everything, you know, every year we have the holiday of Passover. We have the Passover Seder where we sit and we tell this story. This is the moment when the people of Israel were essentially born, where we emerged from this slavery and this persecution, and we emerged as a proud nation, recognizing God, even though we had families while we were in Egypt, many of them fell, fell towards pagan worship. Here we embrace God, and we make our way out, and we have the entire portion here described those last few plagues, And then the actual exodus itself, where the people leave, this incredible, incredible moment, which we view as much more than just a physical uh, leaving from a land of Egypt, but it's a people who are spiritually freed from this polluted environment and freed to become spiritual and close to God, eventually bringing them in a few portions to Sinai itself. And uh, it's also a portion where we see the people of Israel get their first laws uh, of worship. Uh, And therefore, understanding, uh, as we've talked about in the past, Pastor, that freedom doesn't mean freedom to just go do whatever you want to do, but it's freedom to become who you're supposed to be. And that's a person who is uh, worshiping God and lives a life based on the tenets that God has set forth in our faith.
1: We said that this week's Torah portion covers Exodus chapters 10, 11, 12, and the beginning of 13. And as we said, the last three plagues... Number eight and number nine occur in chapter 10, locusts that take over the sky and they begin to kill all the crops, all the plants, therefore all the food for the Egyptians. And that is a demonstration of God's authority over Nut, N-U-T, the sky goddess, and Osiris, the god of crops and fertility. And then plague number nine is also in chapter 10, the darkness, the sky goes dark. Well, that's a refutation of of the egyptian false god with the title re re which was the sun god and another sun god named horus and hathor which is a sky goddess and then we move to number 10 which is in exodus chapter 11 as you mentioned the death of the firstborn and there were gods named men the god of reproduction and hecate the God who attended women at childbirth, Isis, the goddess who protected children. These were the false gods of the Egyptians. But not only that, the Egyptian people were taught, very much like the North Korean people are taught in our world today, that their leader was a god, and therefore the firstborn son of their leader is a god. So the destruction... Of these gods, including the firstborn child in the household of Pharaoh, was a demonstration that you will not see a new God who is a man with the title Pharaoh. You will be able to witness who the one true God is. And we want to get into the Passover story, of course, because it's the most important thing. But I do want you to comment, Rabbi, on the fact that even the Egyptian people began to respect Moses. And they began to see truth. When their false gods were defeated, and the one true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were victorious, even the Egyptian people began to recognize this.
2: And that was one of the goals, uh, Pastor, of the plagues. Um, Very often people misunderstand this. The goal was not punitive in the sense of a vengeful god who's out to just punish people, there is a positive dimension and goal, which is that even the Egyptians uh, will recognize God. And this is a very important point. And by the way, according to our tradition, There are many Egyptians who actually uh, joined the Jewish people, uh, joined their exodus. That's a whole other story. But just the notion of trying to wean the entire world off of pagan worship, this is a mission which all of us have. uh, Certainly when we talk about the people of Israel being a light unto the nations, that's the goal, is that we should bring a world to a place where they all come together and recognize God. The Hebrew words are, Vahaya Hashem leMelech al kol ha'aretz, Bayom Hahu Yeeha Sham Echad Ushemo Echad. The day will come when God will be king uh, over the entire world, and, and everyone will recognize God together. So therefore, that's a very important dimension of everything that happens here uh, during the story. Is Of course, it was to inspire the people of Israel. Of course, it wasn't able to enable them to leave from bondage. But it was also that the Egyptians uh, should learn about uh, this God as well. And if you remember, in the very beginning of the story, Pharaoh actually said, Who is this God that I should listen to him? I don't know him. That was very much the challenge. And therefore, a huge part of these plagues, and especially what you've taught us, Pastor, about how it's you know knocking away these ten gods of Egypt, was to teach the Egyptians themselves about the one true God. And that reaches its climax in this portion as the Egyptians go to Pharaoh and say, what are you doing? How are you doing this to us? It's clear to us and then Pharaoh still holds out, but the people themselves certainly recognize that one God, as was the stated goal of these plagues.
1: So let's talk about the Passover event. Pesach is the holiday, the noun in Hebrew that means to Passover. And it comes from Exodus 12 regarding this 10th plague where the Lord said, take an unblemished lamb, a spotless male one-year-old lamb, and sacrifice it as an offering unto the Lord. Take the blood of the lamb, put it on the doorposts of your home and on the lintel, the top frame of the door, and then death will come. Death will come to all the homes who do not have the blood of the lamb, and death will pass over the homes that have the blood of the lamb. So today, our Jewish friends and many Christians, as we do in our household, we celebrate Passover together, and it's a remembrance that the Lord kept his promise. We've said it, Rabbi, in this podcast a number of times, the Lord made a covenant promise, an everlasting promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, And if the Lord lets the people of Israel be killed, either in the famine in the land of Canaan, as slaves in Egypt, during the Exodus, if the Egyptian army tracks them down and kills them, if the Lord allows the Israelites to be killed, then he breaks his promise to be an everlasting covenant God. So the Lord has to preserve life, and he does, and he sends this amazing instruction You need the blood of the lamb on your doorpost, and that will be the key to life. And Rabbi, our Christian listeners will understand, I believe, the connection to Jesus. We believe Jesus is Messiah. We believe that Jesus is God. And one of the titles given to Jesus is the Lamb of God. And we read verses like 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, that says, Christ, our Passover, has also been sacrificed. And so Christians make the connection between the blood of the Lamb in Passover and the blood of Jesus that was spilled on the cross. Now, I know that's not a religious tradition for the Jewish people, but our Christian teaching comes from the importance of Passover as the Israelites were protected by the Lord. And then the next step we read in the New Testament about Jesus, his blood being shed and those who have the blood of Jesus or a relationship with Jesus have life. And so that's how our teaching connects the dots together.
2: It always amazes me when I see how uh, other faiths, in this case the Christian faith, take something from uh, the Bible and how it uh, it applies in their faiths for us. The, the story of Passover is very much, first of all, that term Passover. It, it shows God's individual dominion, meaning there's no overall God who's just letting the world run and sort of watching things from above, but involved on such a specific level where, house to house, if there's a Jewish home with the blood on the doorpost, then passing over. That degree of, of what we call in Hebrew, Hashgachah Pratit, of divine providence involved in our lives, and that's what we're ultimately celebrating in this story. And uh, for us uh, there's no doubt that the blood certainly demonstrates the sacrifice and and the giving of thanks to God and and demonstrating that proudly, you know, to be able to go in the middle of Egypt and say, I'm proudly demonstrating that I'm a Jew, putting it on the doorpost. Today, uh, we have a mezuzah that we put on our doorpost. You might see in Jewish homes and certainly throughout Israel, you see this. Uh, there's a little box on the doorpost, and there's a parchment in there with some very uh, key holy texts, the idea that we're, we're proud, we're out there, we're no longer in a state of persecution, we're no longer in a state of fear. We have God on our side who passes over our homes and provides us with protection. And the night of Passover is called a Leel Shimurim, a night of God's guarding over us where we feel uh, comfortable. There are even certain prayers that we usually say when we go to sleep at night, which we don't even say uh, on those nights, or some have a custom not to, because God's going to protect us uh, anyway because it's such a special night That's the ultimate celebration when you can come out right and say, uh, this is who I am, I'm, I'm, I'm proud to be a Jew, I'm proud to be a person of faith, uh, I'm proud to be a person who stands up and gives thanks to the Lord. And, and this is something which, you know, we live in a world today Where sometimes people are afraid of being mocked for uh, their religious faith, there's certainly an attack on religion in, in all kinds of places in the world. We especially have this issue on college campuses that students have, and and to try to build them up to the point where they can be proud and say, "I'm a proud Jew. I'm a proud supporter of Israel." To have that kind of pride and strength of conviction, that's very much what we take from that episode of taking the blood, putting on the doorpost, and making that very clear statement. And the moment you do that, then the response is that divine providence, is that God involved in your life, and you actually start seeing that much more. The moment you can be out there and be proud and be strong in that conviction, it makes it a lot easier to see God involved in your life as well.
1: And just to make a few more connections for our Christian audience to the teaching we're getting from Exodus chapter 12, when Christian churches have what they call communion or the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper, that is a remembrance of a story that takes place in the Gospels on the night before Jesus goes to the cross. So... Christians call the day that Jesus goes to the cross Good Friday, and the day before that would be Thursday evening. And the Gospels tell us that Jesus gathers with his disciples and he has the Passover meal. So the Last Supper, or the Lord's Supper, was Jesus, the Jewish man, who celebrated Passover every year of his life with his Jewish disciples, taking the Passover. He takes the unleavened bread and the cups of wine that are part of the Passover meal, which is called Seder. The Hebrew word that means order because there's a very specific order to the meal. And that is the meal that many Christian churches now know of as the Lord's Supper. But they may not connect it back to its origin, which was the Passover meal. Rabbi, you know in our church, because you've been here, that we have a mezuzah on the front door of our Christian church in Texas. And I don't know how common that is for churches, but we do because of the commandment to to put the Word of God on the doorposts of your heart, as it says in Deuteronomy 6, and the blood of the Lamb on your doorposts here in Exodus chapter 12. I also want our listeners to understand for the Christian audience, that when the instructions given in Exodus 12 to have an unblemished male goat or sheep, we believe Jesus was sinless. He was unblemished. And so, again, that's how we connect the dots for these things. And, Rabbi, I want to ask you to talk about how important it is for the Passover meal to always be reminded that God makes his covenant. And if you will seek the one God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you will find life. If you reject him and seek after all the false gods from the list of the Egyptians or from the list of 21st century America, there's no life in a false god. There's life in the one true God.
2: I think to myself all the time, you're thinking about 2,000 years that the people of Israel were in exile, and every single one of those years they sat down wherever they were, sometimes in the worst of circumstances, just in more modern history, in concentration camps, go further back in in, in situations of pogroms and, and just the worst possible scenarios, and they had a Passover Seder. They had a Passover Seder every single year, told the story, talked about God keeping His covenant, God keeping His promise. God bringing the people of Israel out, eventually to Sinai, eventually to the land of Israel. And it was a strength of belief and faith, which without a doubt kept them going for all 2,000 years. And if without that... Had we not had that connection to the story and not talked about God keeping his covenant, I don't think we would have lasted for those 2,000 years. But we held out. And by the way, the last word from the Passover Seder, we say, L'Shana Hababi Roshalayim, next year in Jerusalem. People were in the most impossible circumstances. How could next year in Jerusalem? But if you believe in God and you understand God's capabilities and obviously the omniscient power, then it could happen next year in Jerusalem. And sure enough, it has actually happened. And now when we sit down and celebrate Passover in Israel, and the people who do so in Jerusalem, uh, you just see how everything comes full circle and all the promises have come true. But you have to have that belief. You have to know that the Word of God will come true. In our time, it's so much easier, Pastor. You know that. you come to Israel, and you see it. It's so much easier than the people who, who lived in darkness for all those years, but they lived in physical darkness, but they had that spiritual light with them, and that kept them going. And now today, we're the ones who are really enjoying the fruits of, of that faith and that conviction, as all these prophecies are actually coming true. But it all goes back to this story, where God made a promise, and even though the people weren't such darkness in Egypt with no possible hope. How are you going to leave a land where you have this pharaoh who, like you said, is a divine figure and has you enclosed in this iron curtain? There's no place to go. And yet they held out the faith. It actually happened. And that's the story that keeps us going in whatever difficult times we have, to know that as long as you have that faith. As long as that faith is there, and you know that God has made these promises, then you know that things are are going to come true. And This is something which, uh, you know, we've talked about some things uh, on today's uh, program which uh, our faiths don't agree about. Uh, This is one area where I know for sure we definitely agree.
1: And I would like to remind our Christian audience of one more thing, and then close with one final verse from Exodus. For those who are followers of Jesus and believe that he is the Son of God, Remember, he was a Jewish man who lived in the Jewish land of Israel. The story of the Exodus takes place about 1,400 years before the earthly life of Jesus. So if God breaks his promise to the Jewish people in 1,400 B.C., then Jesus is not born to the Jewish family in the house of Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem 1,400 years later, and we don't have a Jesus to follow. So there are many, many connection points here in the story of the Passover from this week's Torah portion to Jews, obviously, but also to those who follow Jesus. And Rabbi, I want to finish with one of the last verses of this week's Torah portion. It comes from Exodus chapter 13, verse 14. And it shall be when your son asks you in time to come saying, what is this? Then you shall say to him with a powerful hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. So I ask you, as a Bible teacher, a rabbi, but also a father, the importance of teaching the next generation of God's past faithfulness.
2: So it's very possible that that people um, in the Christian faith aren't familiar with this, but when I talked about our Passover Seder and sitting down around the table, there are actually rules about how that Seder is run, including that it has to be done in question-and-answer form. The children ask questions, The parents give the answers. If there are no children, there's somebody asks the questions. There has to be that dialogue. And this is the night where so many things are done. We have many rules and also customs that are related to engaging the children. And it's always viewed as the night to give over our traditions. It's the night where there really is this connection between parent and child, child to parent. And I can tell you, growing up as a child, always looked forward to that experience, especially I had my grandparents who would join us for the Seder, or we would go to them, and just to have those moments of, of connection and realizing that you're part of a chain of faith and a chain of tradition, and you're just a link in that chain. And the idea that it's been told from generation to generation, meaning I know for a fact that from my father to his father and going all the way back and goes all the way back a few thousand years to the story of the exodus, the story has been told. And that's the most powerful element there could be, and I hope that even if you don't have the tradition of a Passover Seder in your faith, certainly to take advantage of moments and create moments where you have those kinds of events, meals, discussions, where parents are actually conveying their faith to their children. You can't just assume that it's going to happen by osmosis. It's not just going to happen uh, by them hopefully observing what we do. There has to be an actual teaching, actual conversation, opening up the channels of dialogue so that children can ask their questions and that parent can teach them. And this is very, very central to the Jewish faith, and very central, exactly the verses that you pointed out. And by the way, it actually says in some of the verses that you should speak, to the ears of your children. And some of the commentaries ask, why to the ears? That's a, that's a strange thing to say. Of course you're speaking uh, to their ears. What other part of their body would you be speaking to? And those commentaries explain when it says their ears, it means even to infants, little children who don't even, can't comprehend anything. We have to start teaching our faith from the youngest of ages, even when you're really just speaking to their ears. It's just sound waves. It's not even processing. But there's a soul which is observing everything and different from the earliest moments uh, of a child's life. We want to be in a position where we're conveying to them, we're teaching to them, and then as they get older, you can actually have uh, real conversations and real discourse, and that's something which is an essential part of the Exodus story, and an essential part of the Passover Seder, and I have to imagine uh, that this is uh, central to, to your faith as well, in terms of transferring the, the tenets of the faith to the next generation.
1: That's our calling as parents, as grandparents, to teach the next generation who the true God is, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We have the privilege on the Lone Star Podcast here to study the Word of God together. It's always a joy to study the Torah with my rabbi friend, Dov Lipman. I encourage our Jewish and Christian listeners to read the parashah, the portion this week with the title, Bo, coming from Exodus chapters 10 through 13. Rabbi, I wish you a wonderful Shabbat, blessings to you and your family, and thank you for spending this time with me today.
0: Thank you so much, Pastor. Shabbat Shalom to you and Shabbat Shalom to all the listeners. Thank you for joining us for the Lone Star Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new episodes are ready. Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham next time to expand your mind and encourage your soul. May the Lord bless you and draw you to himself this week.